0: I am. And we find as John records these seven explicit self-revelatory comments uh, by Jesus about Jesus and by Jesus' own words. We we read through the encounters that Jesus have. In different conversations and looking at it, exploring it, trying to find out. Well, that's interesting that he would say, I am the bread of life in that occasion. It's interesting that he would claim to be, I am the door or the gate in that specific situation. But each of these make very specific, far-reaching, outrageous claims about Jesus himself. We're going to look at them together. By the way, Jesus doesn't just claim these th- to know about these things. He is claiming to be these things. He's not just trying to be a teacher and explain things to us. He blatantly claims that he is these things. And by the way, if they're true, which we believe they are because they're right there in the word of God. If they are true, then the implications and the impact is tremendous upon the world. And upon anyone who will simply believe them. These implications will reach deep into our own personal daily lives. The impact impact of these will result in transformation. So I want you to believe that. Ushers, you can go ahead and receive those cards. I'm sure folks are ready by now. Let me just read to you what they are. Uh, You may find them interesting because we don't have time over the five weeks to cover them all. But we find all of these, notice they're all in John's gospel. You think that's an accident? John chapter 6, I am the bread of life. John chapter 8, I am the light of the world. John chapter 10, I am the door or the gate. John chapter 10 also, I am the good shepherd. John eleven twenty five, 25, I am the resurrection and the life. We're going to save that one for the very last Sunday on Easter Sunday. And John 14, 6 will be today's message. I am the way, the truth, and the life. And John chapter 15 uh, says, I am the true vine. Explicit, self-revelatory, profound revelations and identifications that Jesus offers to us. I really felt in preparation for this series that the Lord was, was saying that Many times in our spiritual walk and as we minister in the church and as we are in our own devotions, sometimes it's easy to get our eyes off of Jesus Christ himself. There's so much stuff to learn, to study, and to practice. You know what I'm saying? I mean, we we can focus on this or focus on that. And there's a lot of wonderful things that we can study and that help our lives. But at some point, I believe we must always remember the centrality of the cross of Jesus Christ and Jesus himself. So this series is designed to put the attention, put the focus on Jesus Christ himself, what he said, what he did, and who he is for you and for me. Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 2 says, looking unto Jesus, looking unto who? Jesus, who is the author and the finisher of our faith. Today, we're going to talk about the fact, his claim found in John chapter 14, that he is the way, the truth, and the life. So if you have your Bible on a device or you have uh, a written scripture, please take it out and you can simply read this with me. And those of you who have notes that have been sent to you by our media time can follow along as well. John chapter 14, starting in verse 1. Do not let your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. My Father's house has many rooms, and if that were not so, I would have told you that I'm I would have told you that I'm going if, that I'm going there to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place, I will come back and will take you to be with me, that you may also be where I am. You know the place, you know the way to the place where I'm going. And Thomas said to him, Lord, we don't know we don't know where you're going how can we know the way and Jesus's answer was what I am the way and the truth and the life no one comes to the father except through me if you really know me you will know my father as well from now on you do know him and have seen him that's actually verse seven let me read this to you in one other translation that's the international version. Let me just read this to you very quickly out of the new living translation. I think it even brings it home more clearly. Don't let your hearts be troubled, Jesus said. Trust in God. Trust also in me. There's more than enough room in my Father's home. If there were not so, I would have told you. Would I have told you that I'm going to prepare a place for you? When everything's ready, I'm going to come and get you, so that you will always be with me where I am. And you know the way to where I'm going. Thomas said, no, we don't know, Lord. We have no idea where you're going. How can we know the way? And Jesus told him, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one can come to the Father except through me. If you had really known me, you would know who my Father is. So from now on, you do know him, and you have seen me. So that's the text that we're going to speak from today. Just a couple of little background points. Did you know that this chapter, chapter 14, is commonly referred to as the comfort chapter? It's called the comfort chapter. And there is a lot of comfort offered in this particular chapter. In fact, Martin Luther liked to say about this particular chapter, he said, This is the best and most comforting message preached by Christ while he was on the earth. Just his opinion. But... It's interesting. He was recognizing it as something that has a very sweet, comforting message. It is a jewel and a treasure that's not purchasable with worldly goods. Wow. Let's look at the background. What had been going on when we found ourselves studying here at John chapter 14? Because we know that John's gospel gives us these snapshot moments in the life of Jesus. And John tends to focus more not on the events, but he focuses more on the message. So let's just make sure we know what has happened. Just prior to this, Jesus has warned his disciples, those who are the closest to him, of his imminent persecution, suffering, and death. He had told them, he said, listen, I've got to go and suffer for you. I must go to the cross. And he warned them about it. He explained it to them. And you have to take for a mo- a, t- your thoughts for a moment into the minds and hearts and emotions of those 12 disciples. This literally wrecked their world. Yeah. This prophetic warning of Jesus to them, their world, they thought, was going to collapse into some kind of unbelievable chaos. Why? They had in their minds a messiahship that was going to literally lead a political revolt and upend the current system. And they had great hope. For change, And they knew Jesus, yes, they believed Jesus is the Messiah. This is the one. We have all the evidence. We see the fulfillment of the Old Testament promises. Jesus is the Messiah. But what they thought was going to happen through the Messiah on this particular advent and, and visit to earth wasn't what Jesus was planning. That was not the will of God. And so they were filled with pain, hurt, bewildered, worried in response to this news. Of his imminent death. By the way. uh, Jesus had begun. His. uh, Made this claim. And gave this warning. Several chapters before. Now where did this particular discourse. That we see here in John 14. Where did it happen? It took place in the upper room. Jesus was with on the night before Golgotha. He was in this upper room with his disciples. By the way, before what I read to you beginning in John chapter 14 takes place uh, from a time sequence standpoint, Judas had already, he had already said what he was going to say to Judas, and Judas had already been dismissed out of the room. So he's gone. So he's addressing 11 disciples now, not 12. Remember the condition of their mind and their heart. This is an intimate conversation, one of his last. Messages to his disciples. So that ought to speak to us of the relevance and the importance of that message, shouldn't it? And so we see that uh, their hearts, having been torn up by the news of Christ's upcoming death, we knew that they were experiencing pain and Jesus was sensing it. He discerned. They're really frustrated. These guys are really freaking out. They don't know how to deal with this. It's like all the anticipation that built up for something that was going to happen. And then you know what it feels like when you build up so much anticipation and you're hoping everything's locked in on this. And then all of a sudden it doesn't happen. Something happens in your life and it was unexpected. And you go, oh, you feel like your whole world's falling apart. How many of you know what I'm talking about? You've been there. Some of you may be there today. So what I'm telling you today is these words that Jesus spoke, we're going to delve into them in in depth here. But the application is this. Today, if you are here and you're discontented, or you're anxious about something, you're worried about something that you see is coming in the future, or maybe you're just bewildered and you are confused and something's not making sense to you, maybe life isn't making sense to you. The same answer that Jesus gives to these disciples is the same answer for you and for me today. It all is, the answer is consumed by this, putting your trust in Jesus. Trusting him, and we'll delve into what that really implies. Jesus told them that he wanted them, and to you and to me. He wants us to trust three things. Three things specifically that will help us. Number one, we'll look at these individually. In John 14, verse 1, he says, I want you to trust in my presence. The second thing, he said, I want you to trust in my promises. And then he said, I want you to trust in me, the person of Christ. So let's take each of them and explore them, all right? Number 1, he said, "I want you to trust in my presence." Here, first of all, we notice the consternation and the confusion of the disciples that we were just discussing. They were fully anxious. They were on pins and needles. Can you imagine they're starting to feel like maybe the time is coming and here they're having one of those familiar fellowship times with their master and they're, they're leaning on him and they're loving one another and they're just wanting to have time with him and yet they have this inner sense that something's coming and is really ready to disrupt their lives and their hopes. They were filled with anxiety. By the way, I also think that they were probably suffering from some guilt. You say, why would they feel guilty? We know that they actually felt guilty after the resurrection when Jesus found them. They were feeling guilty, right? Hiding out. But I believe they were also a little guilty feeling right here. And the reason is because John 13 precedes John 14. And in John 13 is when Jesus, we know, took the towel. He waited for someone to clean the feet of all the Those that were attending the meal, do you remember the story? No one did it. So Jesus finally said, fine, they're not getting the message. They're not doing it. He picked up the towel. He picked up the basin of water. And he began to go and wash the feet of his disciples. That had to be an embarrassing moment. That had to be a moment where each of those guys who should have known Jesus by this point, they should have picked up on the servant principle by this point, did not. And here, you know, they're a little bit feeling uncomfortable. And Jesus is washing their feet. And so after that, I don't know about you, but I'd been feeling, I would be feeling a little guilty. I'd be like, man, I should have known that. Man, I should have been there. I should have been the one that was quick to take the water and the towel and wash everyone's feet. Man, then he had to do it and say, "Man, man, I feel bad about that. So these disciples are feeling a lot of anxiety and guilt. And then the Lord comforts him, sensing, knowing what they were going through i just want you to know today god knows what you're going through he he knows he senses your struggle he's not out of touch with it and you don't you don't have to be independent on your own do it your way your thing he knows he senses and he is a comforter he is a comforting god full of love, full of kindness and compassion. And so we notice that that here in the Scripture it specifically says uh, in in the verse... Let me go back to it in in the uh, New Living Translation. He says, don't be troubled. He's saying that because they were troubled. Don't be troubled. You trust God, now trust in me. Literally there in the original language it, it says... You believe God, that's a fact. You already believe God, you're trusting God. Now I'm commanding you, trust me. The same way you trust God, trust me. What was he doing? He's putting himself on an equal plane with God the Father. Helping to make sure that they knew. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. I and the Father are one. You would think by this point they would have figured that out. But sometimes repetition is the price of education, isn't it? He was comforting them. By the way, this kind of belief spoken of here in this first verse is not the same kind of faith belief that we get saved with. It's not that initial faith in Jesus. It's a belief that's in the present tense, The language is in the present tense, which suggests it is an ongoing, continual trusting in Jesus. We were saved. We put our faith in him. We believed in him. We believe what he did for us. And we came to Christ. But even after you've done that, some people stop right there and they never trust Jesus again with much. They get their fire insurance paid up. Then they move on to other things. What he's saying is, look, it's not just about your initial believing. It's about an ongoing, continual belief in me. Faith should be a daily walk, a daily experience, putting your full weight and trust in his presence. He comforted them. Wow, what a wonderful comfort that is. The second thing he was telling them to trust in was to trust in his promises. And we find here two specific promises that are very, very clear. We don't have time to really digress, although I know some of you would love to talk about heaven for about an hour this morning. But the first one is a promise of heaven. It's very clear. Right here in verses 2 and 3, someone says they don't believe in heaven. Then explain those verses to me. Jesus makes it very clear. He is leaving them. He's going to leave them later. Chapter 16, he says, you don't need to panic, though, because the Holy Spirit's coming to live on the inside of you. He said, I'm going to leave you, and I'm going to go what? I'm going to go away, and I'm going to go away to a place that I am going to prepare for you. It is a heavenly home. And by the way, I think some of the translations, sometimes we're used to, when there are many mansions, and, man, we write hymns about it and all that kind of stuff. I think that that kind of a real estate development Uh, really minimizes what God's got in mind, by the way. I mean, he's the master architect, the master interior designer. Amen. So I don't have a clue what it's going to look like, but I think we undersell it quite often. And so he makes the promise. He said, listen, trust me. uh, I've always told you the truth. You can believe what I'm telling you. I'm getting ready to leave. I'm going to go to heaven. I'm going to prepare a place for you. It's going to be an eternal place. And then he adds to that the promise of a return. He says in verse 3, and by the way, I'm going to come. It's not just a destination. I'm going to come and receive you. I'm going to come receive you and take you to this place. He's basically saying, I'm going to come back and I'm going to take you there. Did you know, by the way, that he is just as anxious to return to receive you as you are? To get to heaven. We don't need to belabor it. But let's just face it. Heaven is not only for real. It's a much better place. No pain. No sin. No suffering. Hallelujah. It is real. It's coming. And Jesus said, you don't have to worry. I'm going to come and receive you. I'm excited. I can't wait to come and receive you. And show you what I've got for you. Praise God for that. He said, put your trust in. In my promises. And then number three, he said, I want you to trust me, my person. Now let's dig into this just a moment. In verse five, I'm going to reread it to you. In verse five, we find my Bible's a red letter edition, and all of a sudden I go from red to black ink right there, <laughs> which means Jesus isn't talking. And we see Thomas's quote here. And he interrupts the inquisitive one, the, uh, the skeptical one. We all know about Thomas, right? He had a little trouble with faith. He tended to be questioning and doubting. And so I'm not sure whether to look at this as a genuine, well-deserved inquiry, or I don't know whether to look at it as it was a doubtful inquiry. I don't know. You make up your own mind. But here was the inquiry. He said this. No, we don't know, Lord. He just got saying, you know where I'm going. He said, no, we don't know. We haven't any idea where you're going. How can we know the way? That's like someone telling you, meet me. You get into, you're moving, recently moved into an area, and someone says, oh, just meet me at the Kroger over on College Drive. And, and someone who's new in the area goes, where's Kroger? College Drive? Where's College Drive? They don't have a clue. They'll get lost on the way. Absolutely. She will get lost with the GPS. How many of you know GPS lies sometimes? Everybody know, y'all know what I'm talking about. GPS will lie to you. You can't put your trust in GPS. And Siri doesn't even understand what I say. I have tried and tried and tried, and she still doesn't get it. And, and you ought to hear how she butchers some of your names, by the way. I don't, even want, I don't even want to tell you how she pronounces your names. But anyway, my point is, it would be just like someone telling you to go at this particular place and you saying, like Thomas, I don't, know her. I don't know where that is. I don't know how to get there. And so now, after the inquiry, Jesus gives an answer. He gives instruction. And that takes us to verse 6. And that's when Jesus says clearly. Jesus told them. I am the way, the truth, the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. Now, before I get into the way, the truth, the life, specifically in the time we have remaining, I just want to remind you of something. If you've never read the classic, C.S. Lewis's uh, classic, uh, writings, uh, all of them are good, but Mere Christianity has to be one of the strongest little books that defend the claims of Jesus and make strong arguments for who Jesus really is. Uh, I recommend that you that you read it. But let me just quote to you uh, something that um, is in that book and that we uh, frequently don't don't remember that he writes. This is that great, gifted British writer, C.S. Lewis. And in Mere Christianity, he's putting forth the argument, uh, how how can we doubt, really, genuinely, how can we doubt who Jesus was? And I want to read to you what he says in his book, and then make sure you understand it. He says this, A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things that Jesus said could not be just a great moral teacher. He'd have to be either a lunatic, and he adds, it's still making sense to me, but he adds, must be his, his day. He says, on a level with the man who says that he's a poached egg. I, I don't quite, I'm like, when's the last time you heard someone claim to be a poached egg? I don't know, man. Anyway, but that's what C.S. Lewis is saying. He said, on a level with someone who says he's a poached egg. In other words, they're a little off. Right? Crazy. Or else, he said, he would be the devil. You have to make the choice, Lewis says. Either this man was and is the son of God, or else he is a madman or something worse. You can't shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But listen to this last word, he says, but let us not come up with the patronizing nonsense about his being just a great human teacher. He has not left that open for us. It is not an available option, and he never intended to. What he's saying is, look, you've got to make a decision. Who is Jesus Christ? Today, before you leave, whether you know it or not, every one of you will be making a decision once again. Who was Jesus? He claims to be God. He claims to be God in truth and the way and life. And we know that many people have challenged and debated that claim through the years. He is either a lunatic and insane, or he was a fraudulent liar, or he was just a legendary teacher, or number four, the correct answer, He is the Lord God himself. So let's look at his claims here that kind of uh, flow out of that idea of showing the way. First of all, he says, I am the way. I am the way. This is a profound self-identifying statement. To say, I am the way. By the way, the article the there is very emphatic in the Greek language. It's saying, it's saying the as if in, don't ignore it. It's not just a way, it is the way. He is not just a way, joining many others. He is the way. He wasn't simply trying to teach the way, although he did. He wasn't just trying to point people to the way, he was saying, I'm not, just, I'm not just going to give you a set of directions, Thomas. I am the way. You know the way because you know me. If you put your trust in me, you know the way. Jesus' answer to Thomas rightly pointed them to the core statement of the Gospels. It is striking because not only did Jesus point the way to the Father, but he asserts that he is the way to the Father. Jesus has just gotten through telling his disciples that they know where he's going. Thomas demurs and says, well, how do we know that? And Jesus' response? I am the way. By the way, this isn't just a way. It's the way. Back, uh, I have history in the Jesus people movement of the late 1960s and the early 1970s. Do you know what the pro- the primary slogan. I know most of you are not old enough to know much about that time. Do you know what the primary slogan of the Jesus people movement was, which was a sovereign evangelistic harvest reaching thousands of people who were just drugged out of their minds, um, just had all kinds of issues. It was all just about peace and and love, and partying, and that, that was their life. And all of a sudden, God began to move upon masses of them, bringing conviction to them. It was a revival moment. It was a visitation of God. Do you know what the primary slogan was? One way Jesus. One way. One way. Man, we wore T-shirts. We put up banners. There's even a, a, a New Testament version called the Jesus People's One-Way Bible. I mean, everything focused around that slogan of one way. I think it's, it's not just accidental. I think the fact that people were willing to say and believe, there aren't just a bunch of ways, because I promise you, every kind of Indian Maharaji was saying, this is the way. Uh, the Buddhists were saying, this is the way. The, 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 uh, the, the Muslims were saying, oh, no, there's another way. Everybody's talking about their way. Jesus is making a claim. I am the way. That is, as you can see, an exclusive statement. People today get offended by the exclusivity of that statement. But it is still truth. And by the way, it's not my way or your way. It's not the highway. It's his way. He is the way. The Lord's statement that said, No man comes to the Father but my me as he follows this particular passage in verse 6 up. That statement wipes away every proposed way to heaven. It addresses it, and it clears the deck. It takes away the options of good works, getting you to heaven, getting you to God. It removes the possibility of religious ceremonies. If you just take mass enough, then you're going to get to heaven. Sorry if I offended you, but that's the truth. It takes away the fact that if you donate enough money to the right 501c3 nonprofit organization, maybe God will look kindly upon you. It takes all of that away. It wipes it out, and it makes a definitive, clear statement explicitly. Jesus said, I am the way. And that is the way to freedom. That is the way to freedom. That's the way to forgiveness. That's the way to having our sins washed away. Praise God. And if you haven't found that way and met that way, you need to today. The second one that he claims is, I am the truth. I am the truth. By the way, the truth mentioned 21 times in John's gospel alone, the word truth. You begin to see emphasis when you see frequency of words used. You begin to pick up on the emphasis and And so we begin to see that John was really focused on the fact that Jesus was about truth. He not only was a teacher of truth, he was the truth. He is the truth based standard that every other belief, every other teaching, every other theory must be judged by all god's truth f f. Bruce the great writer, said, all truth is God's truth." As all life is God's life, but God's truth and God's life are incarnate in Jesus. We live in a culture that extols individualism. We live in a culture that for the most part now is rejecting any kind of absolutes. We live in a culture in which these words, what I'm teaching you today, is offensive. And I say, so be it. We live in a place and in a country and in a world where men are cynically asking the same question that Pilate did, by the way. When Pilate said, what is truth? The same philosophical, cynical question is being asked by many. But if Jesus is indeed the Son of God who came to declare him to us, the answer is clear. He is truth. Not just a teacher, but he is truth. By the way, he didn't counter Thomas' skepticism with an argument, with a debate point. He didn't counter it with a quotation that he drew from his memory, but he responded with an authoritative assertion. As the master of life, Jesus was not exhibiting, listen, Jesus was not exhibiting some kind of a narrow arrogance. Rather, he was making the only possible rational deduction from the fact that he, the unique son of God, was the sole means of access to the Father. This is contrasted to the fact that he is It contrasted with world religions all over. Many people believe as Christians that we are narrow minded, believe we've been brainwashed. I don't know about you, but my brain needed some washing. Yes, yes. I am brainwashed. I pray He'll wash all of me. Hallelujah. Listen, there are a lot of other world religions that make all kinds of claims, but did you know that, that even though some, some religions in the world have some similarities, did you know that there's something unique about Christianity that sets it apart? There are a number of things that are unique. But one is the vitally important concept that this idea that God reached out to man to save him because man was helpless to save himself. All the other religions put a great deal of weight upon the fact that somehow you can get there, you can make it work for yourself, and the weight is on you. Listen to me. There is none righteous, the Bible says. No, not one. Jesus is our only hope. He is the only truth and he is the only way to receive God's forgiveness. Are you hearing me today? Every other religion in the world is based on man's efforts to reach to God and to have salvation. I'm blessed and glad today that I can say I don't have to inflict pain upon myself to become holy. I don't, no special sacrifice required of me. I don't have to bow my knees to some man in order that Jesus would forgive me. Some require pilgrims to crawl on their knees. Some require people to punish themselves. And I'm here to tell you, you don't even have to attend church every Sunday. It is because of the righteousness that Jesus has bought for me because I didn't earn it. I can't earn it. I don't deserve it. It is by grace that we are all saved. <laughs> <laughs> Lastly, I am the life. What a wonderful way to conclude this. I am the life. He wasn't just saying I have life to give you. He is the life. Yes, yes. But you, but everyone's looking for a good life. Everybody's looking for certain things in life. Jesus offers us, provides for us two kinds of life. First of all, is eternal life. By the way, the the word life used repeatedly throughout uh, the the Gospel of John. How many times I've got the note here somewhere? Well, I don't see it right now. I think it's it's 30 something times. So the Gospel of John wants to emphasize where do we get life, real life? He offers us, first of all, eternal life, which means we live eternally. In the presence of God. Eternal life. What does it take to have eternal life? Putting your faith and trust in Jesus Christ. Jesus, I am the life. You want real life? You have to believe me. But not only does he promise us eternal life, he promises us an abundant life. Eternal life is futuristic. Abundant life is present day. John chapter 10, verse 10. I have come that you might have that life and life more abundantly. That's a life that is not marked by defeat. That's a life that's not where you're the victim of circumstances. That's a life where you're not always struggling just to make it. It's a life where there is abundant victory and only Jesus Christ can provide that. And it's dependent upon your walk with him, your relationship with him, and you claiming the promises of God's word to enjoy all the abundant life that is offered. I don't know about you, but I want to experience life with a capital L. I want all the Zoe life he has to give. So I challenge you today, take Jesus Christ irrevocably at his word. He is the way, the truth, and the life. That's the ultimate that you and I can commit ourselves to. Would you stand with me? I'm going to ask that our prayer teams would come forward. Stand right here in front of you. And I'm going to ask you a question as I close today. Have you, maybe you're like Thomas and kind of know some things, but you're like, I don't really get this. And you need today to take make the decision to put your trust in Jesus Christ himself. You can do that. Would you bow your heads for a moment? You, and I ask you today, if today is a day that you need to make a choice. Maybe some of you here today are remaking their choices. Maybe once, a long time ago, you decided you're going to follow Jesus, but friend, you haven't been doing that. Maybe some of you have now drifted into skepticism and doubt and unbelief, much like Thomas. Maybe you need to make the decision to come back to a wholesale, total, wholesale, 110% commitment to Jesus Christ. You can do it today. He wants to offer you the hope, the comfort that you need. Some of you are discontented. Some of you have gone through stuff, and you need to say, Jesus is my comforter, and I need him today. But before all of that can transpire, would you deal with the eternal question, what are you going to determine about Jesus Christ? Are you today going to tell me he was a liar? Are you going to tell me that he was simply crazy? Or maybe you think he was just some moral teacher. Or he is the truth. In your own mind right now, in your own heart, I want you just to decide right now, which is it? Which is it? If you're willing to put your total trust in Jesus Christ as your way, as your truth, as your life, whether you've done it a hundred times or whether today is the first time, would you just raise your hand once again and say, I put my total faith in him. My hand is up. Put your hands down. If you couldn't raise your hand, we're going to continue to pray for you. If you raise your hand And this is the first time you have truly made a heartfelt decision. In just a second, I want you to come. In fact, you can just come right now. Come up to one of these couples and let them begin to pray with you. If maybe you've made the decision, but you've fallen away from it, today's the day that you want to say, I'm rededicating myself to that decision today. I see there is no other way. I've experimented, but I've come back to the point of realizing he really is the way. You come now and let one of these pray with you today. Lord, I pray for comfort. Right now, I'm praying for the comfort to come upon every person who is here who's been facing all kinds of challenges and anxious moments and are troubled for one reason or the other. Minister to them today. And Lord, let none of us forget who is the way, the truth, and the life. Thank you, Holy God. Thank you, Father. Hallelujah. as we meditate on God's goodness, know that you are blessed. May the Lord not only bless and keep you, may he make us secure in his presence, knowing that he is the way. May we know him even more as we walk through the week, following him and receiving him as the life, knowing his truth and walking in a level of freedom, like we have never walked before. May God's grace be upon you. You are dismissed.